0: Welcome to Two Therapist Tales, a podcast where Jacqueline Sabodi and Anna Zonin work to normalize conversations about mental health. So welcome back to Two Therapist Tales. I'm Jacqueline Sabote, and today we have Emily Zimmerman and Sarah Velez joining us on the podcast. Today, we want to get together to talk about April being Alcohol Awareness Month. Emily is a licensed clinical social worker with a doctorate from Rutgers University. She has spent over a decade and a half working in the treatment of mental health, addiction, co-occurring disorders, but not limited to inpatient, outpatient, and acute care settings. Emily believes that there are many pathways to recovery. However, attainment with one therapist, a sense of hope, sense of purpose, willingness, motivation, empowerment, and personal choice are essential. Her work in this area has been published in the clinical social work journal today emily is solely working in private practice in red bank new jersey sarah velez is a licensed clinical social worker who is the addiction specialist at the therapy institute she specializes in 12 step based recovery and is passionate about treating each client in a holistic and caring manner sarah specializes in working with couples who are struggling with the effects of substance abuse she has been in recovery herself for over ten years, and utilizes her personal experience to meet each client where they are and support them as they navigate sobriety. Amazing introductions! Two powerhouses <laughs> here joining us today, um, and I, you know, I really love that you both specialize in this topic. Um, I'm not well versed, as I kind of mentioned, so it's great to have you um, again, a specialist, to join us today. Um, often, we have a variety of listeners on the podcast, so I hope that the a conversation that we have today kind of piques everyone's interest. Awesome. Thanks, guys. So let's go ahead and um, jump in. Let's talk about um, recovery in general. Like, what does it mean to be in a recovery process? And, you know, as therapists, we hear about those five stages of recovery. Like, are those things that you as clinicians kind of like stick to? Or are there other theories that you try to integrate and um, utilize in your approaches?
1: Yeah, I think I love, you know, the five stages being pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance. So I would say as a clinician, I'm not like as rigid and sticking with that. I'm, it's kind of a more fluid process of like meeting the client where they are. You know, sometimes with recovery, there's a lot of, or addiction, there's a lot of denial. There's a lot of, you know, um, resistance to even acknowledging the problem. Like I've worked with Clients who really don't come in with the presenting problem being addiction, but then through our discussions, that becomes the presenting problem. So it's kind of like meeting the client where they are, you know, helping guide them. I loved how Emily said in her introduction, you know, it's not a forceful process. It's very much, you know, in recovery, we say it's attraction, not promotion. You mm. really want to, you know, kind of see the value in seeking sobriety or in seeking a healthier solution, as opposed to just kind of staying in, you know, in the addiction. So I think it's really about, you know, more kind of support, encouragement. And of course, those stages are definitely helpful as a clinician to kind of assess where they are. Are they in extreme denial? Are they maybe seeing that there's a problem? Are they willing to admit there's a problem? Like I had a client this week who said, well, I'm definitely an an alcoholic, but I'm not a drunk. And I was like, okay, you know, like that. Whichever it, language. That, yeah, right. whatever, you know, that.
0: Whichever that language matters. feels right. Yeah,
1: at least there was some like acknowledgement, you know, so, but I loved how there was like the stigma. Of, well, I'm not a drunk, you know, so, yeah. but yeah, yeah, so it's a lot of kind of the language and just, um, yeah, like just meeting them where they are. I'm, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think I agree with everything um, Sarah's saying. I think that, um it also depends a lot on where you're working. Um, I find that when I was working um, in sort of an agency setting um, and, that, and even that would depend on where that agency was located, you kind of see clients across the continuum of these five stages. Um, certainly if I was working in a more um, like urban community I would see a lot more people brought in by, say, the criminal justice system who might have been, um, you know, brought into recovery or at least treatment um, through a different pathway than somebody who, uh, you know, sort of came to it on their own or feels a little bit more motivated to to change um, so there's a kind of a different sometimes there's different reasons why people enter treatment to begin with and they might come in um in action stage or they might come in in preparation stage or they might come in and complete pre-contemplation and stay there um, so that was one of the things that i noticed um throughout my career is that you know depending on my place of work um i might sort of automatically see a lot more of one or the other and have to do a lot of different kind of work now that I think in private practice I see certainly more people who are um, in that preparation stage uh, or that pre-contemplative stage and again like Sarah said people don't usually come in for that but I think somewhere they might know and once the trust is established um, that kind of starts to come out. So, you know, I think trust is really important in in moving through those stages as well. Trust with the therapist. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of think um, about what you said. That's a good
0: point, Sarah. Like, not all clients come in with the awareness. But like you said, Emily, like, in the background, they may know. And then, like, in time, sometimes this gets revealed. Any tips for, like, you know young budding social workers who are entering the field and are kind of presented with that, right? So it's just like a little bit, could be like a little bit of a surprise, like, oh, this client came in reporting like anxiety and like, you know, anger issues, but then come to find like their mood is really unstable because like four days out of the week, like they're, you know, engaging in some, you know, excessive drinking or whatever. Right. And then also like, I think this is kind of like common, maybe I'm wrong in saying that, but, but common, like people aren't understanding always like it doesn't necessarily need to be like addiction, but maybe just like alcohol use. And how does that impact their mental health? Right. And like, is there more of like, can we move more towards wellness by reducing some of these addictive behaviors? Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think for, you know, newer clinicians that may, may not have experience with, Mm -hmm. you know, people with alcoholism addiction that you know, to have some, you know, the great thing is that like, I I mean, as I said, I'm 12 step based, but I, you know, support all venues of recovery, smart recovery, refuge recovery, you know, but that's kind of my foundation. Um, So to kind of have that, like have know that those are, you know, really great resources to connect to. I love connecting family members with Al-Anon, you know, and right now, like all of that world is online. So it's very accessible for people. Even I like if people are in that pre-contemplative or contemplative, I'm like, just just put a meeting on and listen, or go onto YouTube and type in AA speaker and just listen, just hear messages of recovery to start to see, like, is this something that may be something I identify with? You know, because it is easy. Another saying is, like, identify, don't compare. When we are listening to those recovery voices, it's easy to be like, well, I'm not that bad, or I wasn't homeless, or I never got a DUI, or I never you know, in jail or whatever, but it's like, okay, but you know, maybe through this pandemic, or am I, is alcohol becoming more of a coping skill for me? Or am I turning to that more than I was? Or am I right? Weed every day? Or am I popping Xanax more than I want to, you know? So it's like, kind of like, just as any clinician would talk about like coping skills, like what are your healthy coping skills? Are they maybe a little toxic or unhealthy right now? So kind of coming from a place of like you're saying like treating mental health and is that yeah. is the substance abuse becoming an issue.
2: Right. Yeah, you um mentioned also, you know, the new therapist, um yeah, like a young therapist sort of just seeing this and um I I think that a lot of young therapists often, you know, work very hard to solve the problem, right? And to sort of give a solution and One thing that I would recommend is um, find out really what the client's goals are, what, you know, what, um, what their treatment goals are, what they're looking to change in their life. And also to assess, I think we kind of have to look holistically, as I often do at, you know, if a person is using a certain drug, substance, whatever, um, is that an indication of a self medication of another mental health problem, same way that I would look at somebody who's um experiencing depression sort of out of nowhere and ask if they've had like their thyroid checked you know like we're trying to kind of check what's really happening and what are we medicating here um because that's really oftentimes what it is it's sort of a self-medication of of something right. um, whether that be emotional or physical and it could be just like a low dopamine or something like this so right. you know we're, we're kind of always assessing all these different things and asking them you know what are you interested in um doing here uh, because again i think i never really go straight for um you know recovery necessarily um until we start to get a little bit more curious and yeah. we have ruled out other things as well of course unless they're saying look i need to get clean you know um so that's one major thing that um, i'm always looking for and also harm reduction in that time period so yeah. just yeah. sort of psychoeducation um and teaching awareness teaching what um you know substances do how they sort of um probably counteract the goal you know the stated goal the client wants to feel better um, drugs certainly help feel better in the beginning that's why you know that's why we use drugs but (laughs) then um it stops doing that you know and it actually gets in the way of the goal so that's what i try to you know just kind of plant that seed
0: yeah, great. So, yeah, just to kind of summarize between the two of you, you offered a lot of, um, you know, just, you know, here we can look at smart recovery, psychoeducation, 12-step, harm reduction, holistic, you know, assessing treatment goals. Yeah, as clinicians.
1: Uh, yeah, I think Emily's totally right. And, like, I wouldn't jump in with, oh, go to a meeting, you know, that's like as you're building that rapport, the trust, you know, assessing. Right that cool right. that's there. And I think can kind of start to open people's minds a little bit, but you know, it's maybe not the first step.
0: So, Great. Right. And also like, right. Like I think for a lot of us as clinicians, like we don't want to be, we want to be a different person to our clients than they have outside of the therapeutic space. Like we don't want to be that parent. We don't want to be that spouse. We don't want to yeah. be, you know, like we want to remain, you know, a different pillar in their lives, um, and so right, it always comes back to the relationship. Yeah. You know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And we always want to be able to offer different resources, you know, whether your social worker or, or match family therapist or psychologist. I mean, we're always um, trying to find the best resources and direct our clients towards help outside of our space as well, because you know, social supports are so important and community supports and all those kinds of things. So I think, you know. Certainly what Sarah's talking about in terms of just letting them know even how you access a meeting should they so desire to, that's something that you want to send them home with at least a little bit of knowledge so that they can, if they're curious, um, you know, do some work on their own. And and that also helps them move through those motivation stages as well, Mm -hmm. um, if they're starting to explore those things on their own. Right, right how do we think family dynamics can
0: impact addiction and recovery so how can it negatively how can it positively how can it not
2: <laughs> I, mean, I think we could do a whole podcast yeah really <laughs> this is just like
0: putting the, the toe in the pinky yeah. toe
2: yeah there's so many things um just to try to think of a few i mean um You know there's the whole nature versus nurture piece right so there's whether people have whether it's a learned behavior or or a predisposition um for uh for use we kind of you know always want to look at that and um again it could be a learned behavior addicted family member you know people can go either way i've had clients who have an addictive family member and followed right in their footsteps and others who avoided completely. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. you, you can't really ever tell mm-hmm. from that. Um, I think that there's definitely um, family beliefs and cultural beliefs around mm-hmm. mental health treatment, mm-hmm. um, and, and accessibility to mental health treatment too. So um, you might find that a person really wants to get help, but um, it's stigmatized in their culture you know, or they don't trust medical professionals or certain types of things like this. So, um, you know, that could negatively impact or positively impact if you have a family who is very open to therapy and, and help and, you know, yeah. right, um, warm, certainly, you know, attachment, we could go into that attachment styles. Um which are formed in childhood, definitely affect, and isolation is known to, so trauma and isolation are kind of two big contributing factors as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah,
1: yeah, I love that, and, you know, like, alcoholism, addiction is really, it's a family disease, you know, it impacts the whole family, and so, you know, when a client comes in, and, you know, they're, like, there's probably some enabling going on by a family member, or there's some denial, or there's, you know, there's a lot of codependency, or there's kind of these like toxic dynamics that exist within a family that are either, you know, like not causing the addiction, but kind of a contributing factor. So we kind of have to assess, you know, like Emily's saying that the whole family, the dynamic there, and a lot of work I do with couples when there is addiction present. It's pretty difficult to do couples' work when there's an active addiction. You know, just like it's really difficult to do, like really I mean, you know, not that it's difficult, but it it certainly helps if the person's sober or willing to be sober. It's a little trickier when they're in their active addiction and there's denial and all that going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with couples, it's like not only getting help for the addicted partner, but also the partner or the family member, That's you know, because who's kind of the quote unquote enabler if that's the role that they're in or that, you know, kind of maybe they're just in complete denial or just completely, you know, not acknowledging the addiction. So there's a lot of different, you know, we kind of have to treat the whole family because it does, you know, there's lack of trust when there's addiction, there's poor communication, there's trauma, there can be Uh, you know, not only physical abuse, but mental, emotional abuse going on. So there's a lot of factors that affect the entire family. Children, obviously, if they're in the home, that's another, you know, concern. So I think it's really, you know, like it can be really good when like kind of the whole family's on board, but it can also be a barrier when maybe there's a lot of denial or enabling going on. But all those things, you know, with time can be treated and assessed, just kind of, you know. I'm taking it
0: well yeah. <laughs> yeah you know it's kind of funny too like as i as I hear you both talking like i you know i te- treat teens and emerging adults and sometimes i say to parents i'm like you're gonna be th- like commit to six months commit to a year like yeah. don't think we're gonna see results totally. overnight or in yeah. three weeks like that's not happening it took us a while to get to where we're at and a yeah. lot of people like should have been in therapy like a year year and a half before they even enter therapy and i'm sure you all see that yes. um in your you know in your specialties and so you know I, I can assume that it's probably really similar too like you're not just working with like again the identified um client but you're working on education with the family system to understand the um the illness and the addiction and you know everything that comes with it and and the behaviors and also to help families identify, like, is there issues of codependency and enabling? And, you know, Emily brought up this um, great point about culture, like all different cultures normalize different types of behaviors, you know? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. um, and I think also we're we're making some good strides, but um, culturally, like not talking about mental health or not talking about addiction, like several generations ago was normative. Whereas like these now like younger generations, you know, Gen Z and 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 you know that that range, millennials, um, we're we're really normalizing it, and I think that it's important for everyone to be educated and know like what type of medical and psychiatric um, health issues existed in in their lineage, right? Like not just like cardiac and cancer, but also okay. the mental health pieces. Like, yeah, it's really important to know that your great grandmother had OCD, or that you know there's a cousin on your mom's side that has bipolar disorder, or that there's addiction that runs through um, your DNA. It's super important.
2: Yeah. sure. And sometimes you'll find um, that the family is so used to, especially with younger people where, you know, maybe it's a college student, they've spent a lot of time or or years or even older, um, spent a lot of time, the addict has sort of become the focus, right? Because everybody's worried about the addict, the addict is, um, you know, often in danger and all kinds of things. So um, when the addict gets clean, that can sometimes become a problem for the rest of the family. Even though it's such a positive event, they don't know how to shift back to mm. focusing on mm. their own selves. You know, everything has been so focused on that on that other person, um, worrying, worrying, worrying. Um, so almost the whole family, like Sarah's saying, has to like relearn their roles and yeah, yeah. and also find that that balance, that homeostasis again.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whole podcast needed. <laughs> <laughs> and and rolling into the next question where a whole podcast podcast could be, um, you know, how this, um, trauma, how does trauma and addiction, what's the intersection of trauma and addiction? Um, I think that, you know, just for all of us, I'm sure we see this, like we've, we've all been in the field now, we've got like at least a decade, which always feels super strong to be able to hold on to that. But understanding, you know, how, how trauma, um, alters our neurobiology, it, um, impacts our ability to trust in relationships, it, you know, fractionates attachment, um, our brain chemistry shifts, and then like, you know, how does addiction then typically present itself?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, trauma is kind of the root of all addiction. And, you know, because it's like under, that addiction and pain you know there it's like there's some saying like the underneath every addict or alcoholic like there's you know it's like you have to ask like what is what is hurting like what is mm. you know where are you hurting what is hurting you because mm. that is kind of you know the root of the the desire to self medicate mm. to kind of numb those feelings yeah. to you know a lot of people with anxiety you know drink to numb the anxiety and then physiologically alcohol makes things anxi- that, you know, actually makes anxiety worse. So it's like this vicious cycle that people get in and, you know, just numbing the feelings of depression and, and there's, you know, and so much trauma can happen to a person in their active addiction. You know, you're putting yourself in more in riskier situations with sexual partners, just in the world, you know? So it's like this kind of very, very vicious cycle that it's like trauma can feed addiction. And then when you're in your addiction can kind of create more trauma. And it does like this. Yeah. Yeah. And just the feel, you know, those feelings of, you know, in, in AA, it's like the term incomprehensible demoralization that comes from Mm. our actions when we're in our recovery, you know, like waking up with those feelings Mm. like shame and guilt that an addict or alcoholic can carry can be so heavy and can just fuel more addiction. So to really treat the root, the trauma, you know, and, and I know an exercise actually you share with me, Jackie, is the trauma map. I love that, you know, just to look at like, where, like, where did all this begin? And I know like EMDR can be a great tool to kind of assess or, you know, um, Work on trauma, but really it's just it's all like recovery is really just about healing, and uh, honestly, every human being is in recovery from something, you know it's just an addict, an alcoholic unfortunately can you know fuels a lot of the trauma with really obviously unhealthy ways, so yeah, I
0: think- yeah that that um those two words incomprehensible demoralization, I think that that really captures exactly what you're saying, like waking up the next day and thinking mm-hmm. about like what did I do while active in my addiction mm-hmm. yeah
1: self-hatred and then that's like well might as well just keep numb going. that all out yeah, exactly so it's just,
2: yeah right yeah yeah i mean trauma changes the brain and so does addiction um trauma you know um actually changes brain structures and so does addiction and these things take a while to heal repair um or readjust um so you'll see you know issues with the fight flight freeze you know the limbic system mm-hmm. um responses might be um you might see hypoarousal you might see all kinds of different things hypoarousal um people especially in early recovery whose brain is now sort of finding its equilibrium again will um maybe have a difficulty regulating emotion Mm-hmm. which is something that I think people with trauma are very used to having problems regulating emotion, probably a very good reason why they were using. Mm-hmm. So even recovery in itself can be a trauma, right? So in addition to the recovery, to the use, using drugs is definitely a trauma, even if you didn't have any before. And And what it basically does is it hijacks the brain into, you know, think receiving substances as though these are food, water, shelter, you know, Mm. sex, those kinds of survival things that we want, that we're encouraged, our brain is encouraged to repeat those behaviors. When you introduce drugs. Now we want to put that before all else. And, you know, that can it takes over. Mm. And to think that, you know, taking a drug could be as important as, you know, food and water and showers and you know just the basic things you need to survive Mm -hmm. Um, intimate relationships all of those things Mm -hmm. Um, when something else takes over and becomes the most important thing that causes isolation and trauma unto itself Mm -hmm. and all of those things cause actual structural changes to the brain Mm
0: Oh, that's so interesting. What you were saying—just this is, um, you know, it, it is a biological imperative and need to connect in relationships, and obviously have food mm-hmm. and water, and um, and that alcohol and drug use can the the brain can look at that as a thing that is needed. It's so interesting. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. It will it will prioritize it above everything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really powerful um shifting gears to the other side of the spectrum mm-hmm. <laughs> what can a sober um life look like what does you know it look like to have sober fun and how can relationships be healthy and you know Sarah you're obviously in sobriety so you can really speak to um you know what your experience has been on a personal level which is amazing and I appreciate you sharing that
1: yeah so yeah when I first got sober or went into rehab I was 21 And, you know, uh, had a couple, I had some long-term sobriety and then a kind of series of of relapsing um, and then finally got sober when I was 25. Um, But to be in my 20s and to be contemplating sobriety was like jumping off a cliff with no parachute because I was like, how do you even exist in this world without... Mm -hmm. drinking how do I date without alcohol how do I you know go out and be social how do I even just do anything you know and I was I was more of a binge drinker I wasn't like a chronic daily drinker so but still a lot of my life revolved around drinking you know it was like this this idea of oh my gosh how do I do this but you know so now getting sober I've been sober over 10 years and I've had more fun in sobriety you know I mean just the gifts of sobriety are incredible and, and it is, it's about building a community. It's about, you know, finding what you love doing it's and, and for people in early recovery though, it's as simple as just, you know, finding other sober people, you know, there's a saying, we have to change people, places and things like what, as I was getting sober, I couldn't be hanging out. You know, I did most of my partying in Miami and I couldn't be hanging out, going out to South beach clubs every night. Like I had to, change you know and that didn't mean i had to sit home and and be alone i you know found hobbies i like doing i surrounded myself with other healthy you know or people that were trying to get sober i you know and yes of course there were times where it felt like i was you know missing out i used to really suffer from FOMO the fear of missing out mm-hmm. today i have JOMO the joy of missing out <laughs> No problem with that anymore. But, you know, but that is, that's all a process. But I think for people or like clinicians that are trying to, you know, kind of paint this picture of what a sober life could be, it's just really, you know, I had to really accept first that I was an alcoholic and also accept the unmanageability that alcoholism addiction created Mm. in my life. And did I really want that for myself? I had to really get honest and be like, do I really want a life where that is going to be the norm for me blacking out making you know unhealthy decisions just not living life to my fullest potential and it and it was like not like oh you know i had a couple aha moments but it was also just like in taking these baby steps and just like finding communities finding you know other people that were on my journey that was a big part of it so because it can and i know right now especially in the coming out of the pandemic it's like meetings and i know well that's a talking point but it's like the isolation it's, that is a breeding ground for addiction as as Emily was saying. So to really, and a, and a lot of times in early recovery, they say like, you know, do the opposite of what your brain is telling you to do. Like if your brain is telling you to sit home and watch Netflix all day, don't do it. You know, don't,
0: don't trust it.
1: You know, <laughs> go to the park, take a walk, get outside, go meet a friend for coffee. Do anything other than what your first thought is telling you, not right. saying that forever, like eventually we want to get to a point where we trust ourselves and trust our intuition. but like in the beginning those those self defeating self sabotaging thoughts are so real that it's like we kind of have to fight against that so right. Right. but i you know I love being sober, and I have a lot of fun being sober <laughs> <laughs> so.
2: that's awesome, um. Just to add a little bit to that, from um, just from a clinic, just from my um, working with my clients' perspective too. Um, sometimes I try to remind them that while their life, while using, was so um, was so encompassed by you know the getting and using and finding ways and means to get more, right? The mind was always on the drink. You know, I have clients who. Um, are really focused have always been very focused on what are other people drinking and, um, you know, sort of pace, trying to pace themselves or, you know, different type, where can I get alcohol? Should I pregame before we go somewhere so that I can be at the same level as other people. And now they're about to go into the world and maybe they have like a wedding or something to go to. And they're very anxious. How will people think, you know, I'm not drinking, what'll I say? And this isn't always the case, but oftentimes, People who aren't alcoholics or people who aren't drug users aren't so concerned about whether you're drinking or not. Right. They're not looking yeah, at it yeah. that way, and they're not thinking about it that way. Totally. Um, you don't have to give them a reason. They might not even need one. If you say, "I don't," you know, "I'm not having a drink," they might just move on. <laughs> okay. um, and I just try to kind of explain and and demonstrate sort of the cognitive distortions that come along with, mm-hmm. a, you know, a drug using mindset. Right. You know, and so just to challenge that and just to give them a little bit of freedom, you know, not everybody knows what's in your head. And while you're very hard on yourself and you're very critical and you know your history and you know all those things and you stigmatize, most likely stigmatize yourself. um, Many other people aren't going to look at you like that. They're not going to see that, you know. And so um, that's just something that I try to, you know, use to help. Again, of course, if you're if you live with an alcoholic family, that's harder to do, you right. know? Um, so there's always exceptions,
0: but I like you bring up the part of like the observing brain, like the one that's always like narrating our experience. Mm-hmm. Right. So like we're having a conversation, my thinking brain is the one that's participating in it. And then like my observing brain is like, Oh, I really like Emily's plants. Um, or like, <laughs> oh, I heard something outside my window. Right. So there's these constantly, these two dialogues mm-hmm. going on in our minds. And it's really important to understand what is your observer, Think you know what kind of observer do you have? Like I try to educate clients. I'm like, do you have a really critical observer? Do you have a really self-deprecating observer? Do you have a, an observer that drives perfectionism? Do you have an observer that tries to, you know, distort who you are socially? Um, like and 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 who? who, like whose voice narrated that? Like, is it a parent? Was that society? Like, you, didn't, you know, we're born into our experiences, but like, what, like where did that voice, you know, how did that voice get all this information and why do they have so much power? Hmm. Um, and that's different than thought disorders and auditory hallucinations the visual hallucinations for those <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> just to clarify.
2: <laughs> <This point.
0: laughs> um, what are some of the common challenges, um, you both have encountered in terms of working with clients who are um, in active addiction or recovering or, you know, living sober lives.
1: Um, yeah, I think, you know, denial is what there's a side There's a denial. Is a not a river in Egypt or something? I don't know. There's some like joke about denial, whatever. But that is a real thing. You know, it's like, and so um, that you know, I think um, like kind of like I was saying that the jumping off a cliff, that the idea of what sobriety may mean, people, um, you know, feeling like you know I, they're going to be missing out, that they that they can't function without alcohol, that they're going to be like this weirdo, you know. I think a lot of the the stigmatization of alcoholism and addiction. I think for a lot of people you know, that I think I'm seeing more of a trend of people not even wanting to say they're an alcoholic or an addict because of the stigma or because of, you know, which I I support, however, the person wants to identify themselves, you know, but I'm, there's, there's a lot of obviously stigma in our society still about, you know, we live in a society where it's very normal to drink, to be out, to be drinking on TV, it's everywhere and movies, it's everywhere, it's everywhere, you know, and I remember when I was first getting sober. I remember like like a new. I think this, those hard seltzers were coming out, and I was like, oh, "What? What is that? Like, I've never had it." And I felt like everywhere I looked, there were hard seltzer commercials. And I'm like, "I'm today. I'm so grateful I never tried a hard seltzer." But whatever, it's like yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's everywhere. And
0: Yeah, like but, as more things like come onto the market, like
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: So, <laughs> but you know, so just really like and again it's not we can't convince anyone that they're an alcoholic or an addict we can't convince them Mm. that sobriety is the answer you know it really has it's the only disease that's really self um Mm. you know diagnosed Mm. like it because it really it's a disease that centers in the mind you know and it's a disease that it's the only disease, too, that wants to tell you you don't have a disease, you know, like if you got cancer, you're going to follow the doctor's orders, you're going to do chemo, radiation, or if you have diabetes, you're going to take insulin. But why, if, you know, you can identify it as an alcoholic or addict, there's this, this like push pull of like, well, I'm going to do it my way, or maybe I, I don't like those group meetings, or I don't want to be an alcoholic, or there's all these kind of stigmas we as individuals can have, and also a society that we're kind of being you know, bombarded with on a daily basis. So I think that, you know, among many other barriers, is is a very real thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I agree um, with everything that Sarahs explained, and I think it's hard work. It is a difficult um, but rewarding work to do with addicts because um, a lot of the time they are so. Um, They are so creative, intelligent, empathic, sensitive, um, you know, just a really, a really great, um, group, but they tend, but, but the addiction has gotten in the way of them, you know, living up to their full potential. And so, you know, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of sort of, when I first started, I know I had a hard time when my clients relapsed. Mm-hmm. You know I took I felt bad. I felt like you know had i could I have done something different um, and there comes a point where it really you know the the client has a personal responsibility to do some level of work, and we as clinicians have to find acceptance with where where they are and and maybe let them go you know and come back um and but that is very hard <laughs> a very hard part of the work and So I would say, yeah, when I think about a client that calls that's, you know, new here for, you know, an addiction issue, I I am always aware that that relapse might be right around the corner and that's hard to lose somebody. Um, And one other thing too, I would say with challenges is, um, you know, the challenges that come along with different populations, the challenges that come along with working with um, LGBTQ communities who are disproportionately showing up with um, addiction problems or with, um, you know, people of color who are disproportionately criminalized around this, Um, you know, that can be very hard because you'll see, I think many of us, at least in this part of the country, um, the professionals, the psychiatrists and the therapists and the doctors are predominantly white upper middle class. And um, even the places I've worked in, in the city, in, you know, in Hell's Kitchen, the clinicians were white interns, white, you know, young girls, um, the clients were, you know, incarcerated or homeless. Um, and they were predominantly black, let's, you know, people, you know, people of color, and there was definitely an empathic disconnect. Um, in what I, you know, what people are being asked to do in terms of their recovery, if they don't have, you know, a home, you know, it, this is it, you know, services like employment and things like that are really gonna go a longer way um, than maybe other things that we would do for a different population who is less criminalized, you know? Um, So there's that piece also to look at. And I think it's very important that new clinicians really examine bias and understand Mm -hmm. the system in which we work as it pertains to addiction uh, specifically. Mm-hmm. because um, you have to look at how your clients are being maybe injured by a bigger, a broader yeah. system that keeps them there, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know not to make it too political, right? But like we had this like great court outcome this week that hopefully is just one drop to heart, start like shifting things. Yeah. That topic makes me emotional. So I-, I mean, Sure, I'm just, sure. And I I've, think
2: that was a really important, again, not this isn't political at all. I think this, to talk about the fact that when the, when the defense tried to imply that his addiction was the reason, Mm -hmm. you know, being an addict and certainly being an addict of color, does not, is not a death sentence, right? It should not be, you should still be, um, help should still be available to you for, you know, by the people that are employed to do so. So that was really important um, to see and, and emotional. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But it is it's difficult because we have um, I read something recently that, you know, people of color are more likely, less likely to finish treatment. But when they do, they're um, more likely to be prescribed methadone Mm -hmm. for, say, uh, you know, an opiate addiction, which is regulated by the DEA, overseen by the DEA and stigmatized in methadone clinics Mm -hmm. where many white opioid users are you know, prescribed Suboxone at their private, at their doctor, and they could take that at home in a very private setting. Uh, it's a very different experience, you know, um, and the news doesn't report, you know, they report people of color using in a very criminalized way. You know, they talk about um, the charges and who was caught. And in a white community, they often talk about the person was suffering from depression or they had a surgery and they started taking medication and, you know, who they are. You know, these are things that really have to change in the addiction work that we do. And we have to um, certainly as white clinicians really be aware, learn and, you know, let our clients know that we're trying to do this work and trying to, um, you know, understand where they're coming from and what their actual needs are not what our goals are yeah Yeah, and I think you know something that
0: school has kind of just like reiterated like over and over is like we are not the knowers we are not the experts like we have to be the students and listening to the actualities of others of other people's experiences right so how can we know if we really can't walk those shoes or have had those lived experiences yeah yeah
1: true.
0: Um, who are some of like the big wigs in the field that you all um, follow? I know, like for me, it's like Jeffrey Jensen Arnett and like Ki Levine and Francine Shapiro um, mm-hmm. with my work. But who are some of the the names that people could kind of like maybe google or look up. Um,
1: yeah, I think I mean, just on social media, um, there's like a lot of you know recovery based um, men and women who are kind of coming out and normalizing sobriety. Um there's some great books. there's um what's Holly Whitaker I like she wrote quit like a woman Uh, (laughs) Laura McCowan wrote we are the luckiest the surprising magic of sober life which is a really awesome book Gabrielle Bernstein has a lot of great you know um kind of recovery and just mental health based books and just kind of positive you know messaging Russell Brand who you know but Mm -hmm. he just kind of like all these like kind of You know, like kind of just bringing some lightness and, you know, because there is, as we've talked about, you know, there's a lot of heaviness that comes with with addiction and just recovery and, you know, the system and all these things. So just to kind of have like a little, you know, lightness or just be reading about, you know, ways that like recovery can can be something that's really attainable and and positive, positive, you know, right
2: yeah i think um i lo- i love russell brand <laughs> <laughs> i think awesome. i think he contributes so much um he's one of my favorites uh, but when we look I, I think you know of course you look at the people who you know dr rob wilson like this you know the people who sort of started um the AA and and those kinds of you know community self-help programs even though they you know in many ways the original is um somewhat archaic and, and some things, you know, the, the wording and say the big book might not appeal to a newer, um, you know, a newer, more feminist crowd. It, it works, it works for a lot of people and it's a beautiful thing. And so that's really important. Um, and then going from there, I think, you know, my approach is very individualized to the client. So I'm going to look at, you know, brain spotting David Grant you know, and even further, um, I think her name is Roby Abel. She created um a setup with brain spotting specifically for addiction. Oh. So that's a really interesting one where she um it's it's three brain spots and it, it sort of connects the um the pleasurable experience of using to the consequences of using so mm-hmm. that these are not two separate um mm-hmm. you know disjointed uh, thoughts and memories and it's sort of integrated so that they have like a little bit of a leg up when if they want if they get a craving they can remember the consequences pretty mm-hmm. quickly mm-hmm. Um, so brain spotting is a big one um any type of trauma therapy um seeking safety mm-hmm. you know those kinds of trauma therapies that, that combine addiction mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know totally. affect regulation theory although you know yeah. out shore and hill those are those are the ones yeah
0: and you had mentioned earlier you know
2: like um Bowlby's attachment like all this stuff is oh like-
0: yeah Bulby, yeah right
2: classical attachment and then yeah. and then affect regulation go hand yeah. in hand and yeah. um so important i think yeah. just the attunement itself is really is really important i think nobody can work with a therapist that they can't connect with and that they don't yeah. feel understands them hears them sees them yeah. you know knows them on a right brain to right brain level yeah
0: yeah, that unspoken beneath the surface, our nervous systems are communicating. Yeah, yeah. that's so important. Um, this is like, you know, very, very current. Um, so how has COVID impacted um, those in recovery? You know, Sarah, you mentioned like AA and NA and Al-Anon, all those platforms have been moved online, um, which I think, you know, in, in some ways maybe is a positive because it's um, increased accessibility, Um, And like you said, like, maybe people are more inclined to like sign on to a Zoom room versus walking into an actual room and they can kind of, you know, just feel that out, Um, you know, but there's increased isolation being surrounded by family all the time, especially if family's not, you know, the healthiest influence.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think, you know, when we're kind of out of this, the numbers we're going to see on relapses, overdoses, suicides, domestic violence, all of it, it's going to be really shocking and pretty tragic you know because this is I mean you know this is a really hard time for everyone but you know alcoholism as has been touched on really breeds in isolation breeds in you know when there's financial stress when there's you know familial kind of dysfunction and distress and um so this is it's it's definitely I mean in a lot I you know and I've kind of heard both sides where some people like you're saying love the zoom meetings and they're like you know i can get on a zoom meeting every day and i can be on a zoom meeting in ireland or in you know india and it's so cool and like i personally i hate the zoom meetings you know like i'm on zoom calls all you know for a lot of the day like i like that kind of interpersonal connection of a meeting or just like being around people but like i've you know i've adjusted and i've you know done what i need to do for my recovery and i yeah. you know encourage other people to get on Zoom meetings but it's also like having other you know it's not just having that it's like other you know support systems um in place also but yeah i think that this has been you know just a really <clears throat> difficult time i mean i think even as clinicians we're seeing people who maybe were functioning with anxiety or depression before the pandemic yes. that once the pandemic hit it's like all their coping skills whether it was the gym or church or meetings Mm -hmm. or whatever are gone. And now it's like the coping skill can become, well, I'm just going to drink, you know, a bottle of, you know, wine or I'm going to pop Xanax or I'm going to start, whatever it is, because those, the typical coping skills that so many people have are, are gone. And so I think it's really, it's, it's, you know, not to be, you know, I, but I also think that this is an, an opportunity to kind of, you know, build on The resiliency of alcoholics and addicts and that a lot of people have maintained sobriety through this and a lot of people have come into. sobriety through this or maybe have shifted or have seen like I don't you know I don't want to use those coping skills so it's not like it's all tragic, but I do think that this, this is a very difficult time for a lot of people
2: yeah 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 yes also um. I've heard that some uh, Zoom meetings have been interrupted by some really um, distracting hackers. Yeah, I was, that happened to a few, like earlier
1: on. I'm sure, I'm sure that that's happened. Yeah, and, so, so that's distracting. But yeah, <laughs> of the, I think now, like a lot of the meetings have kind of figured it out a little better, like having passwords or you know, like mm-hmm. a better yep. system. But still, yeah, of course that.
2: Yeah, that's
1: (laughs) crazy out there. Yeah,
2: you know, I think the reliance on Zoom also, you know, there's an expectation of access to um, personal computer and internet service. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a lot of people that really weren't able to, um, might not be able to do that. I mean, I think um, some people rely on school and libraries to uh, access computers and internet. So that's Mm -hmm. that's causing a difficult problem, and also. It's not just COVID, it's been COVID plus, um, you know, a lot of painful, wonderful movements in in Black Lives Matter and different things like this, but um, we've been witness to, we've been bearing at home with nowhere to go, bearing witness to unspeakable trauma, Mm -hmm. people dying from COVID, ICUs overrun and all that stuff. And And the news is kind of, you know, bringing that all into our homes and it has become a trauma to our system it's exhausting Mm -hmm. Mm um i you know it's even uh it's even an example of my privilege to say that i'm suffering from it now right just recently because it's been broadcast into my home Um, and it's something that you know i really had to take a look at is that you know this has all been going on but you know so that's been uh i think sort of a complex set of traumas that we as a whole have been experiencing uh and that's certainly a trigger for um for use. It's been very challenging, I think, for a lot of people.
0: Um yeah.
2: you know, moving in the right direction, you know, but it's still so Yeah. Yeah.
0: I know. I um I think as clinicians, like we've had to hold space for all of this, you know, while going through our own personal um situations and with no roadmap of how to navigate this for our clients
2: yeah 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 Yeah, sometimes just sitting with them and and um being present and you know there's there isn't an answer there isn't a solution right today and and sometimes we need to just sit together and mourn
0: and grieve. there's you know to allow the universality and the humanness like and sometimes that is the intervention and the most effective one Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for anyone who might be listening, um whether considering therapy or um working on recovery, what's one thing you would want to what you just one word, words that you'd want to offer them um in terms of their journey? Mm-hmm.
1: Good question. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's just that this is like there's hope, you know, that there's there's healing. To be had, it's not always an easy journey, but it's definitely possible. And it's, you know, there's so much light on the other side. And, you know, just taking those baby steps of calling a therapist is that may feel like a huge step. You know, I have a lot of clients where, like, I'm like, just getting here was a huge step, you know, like just making that phone call, like that is huge. That is self care. That is accountability. That is, you know, a lot of self awareness. And, So just, you know, taking like, it's kind of like, you know, and we know that like the clients have the answers, like they know, they know, they have a lot of self-knowledge and self-awareness and insight, but it's like, you know, to be able to reach out for help can feel so overwhelming and scary, but just knowing that by reaching out for help, it's like a, that leap of faith, that jumping off the cliff, you know, that knowing that I do have a parachute. I am gonna be okay. You know, like whether it's aligning with the right therapist, finding a support group, you know, finding like a, a healthy community, whatever that looks like. But just taking those steps towards, you know, a healthier way of life as opposed to, you know, because the disease wants to keep you stuck and sick and alone and in self hatred and all those things. It wants to keep you there. And so I think, like you were talking about with that, the voice, listening to that voice, like, is that the disease talking to me, trying right. to? Keep He's stuck in the disease and you know in this just like vicious cycle but like sometimes it's like we kind of call it that the moment of clarity of like that little and I know Jackie you call it, like a little whisper like that little voice that's like mm-hmm. like you know because like it's okay like you can do this or you know like there's something better like you don't mm-hmm. have to keep doing this and like sometimes it's just listening to that little voice that we've you know, can be ignored for so long or that we've numbed with drugs and alcohol, but just taking that jump and just knowing that it's gonna be okay.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with everything that she that she said. I think that that's such a powerful um, first start, first step. And um, the only thing I guess I could add is that when I would want somebody who's listening now, I guess who's who's carrying that weight, to remember that, um, it's the secrets that sort of keep us sick. Right. And so mm-hmm. if, you know, your family might have a lot of expectations or your friends might want you to make a change right away, or there might be shame or whatever, um, it comes with that, but that's not my role, you know? And so if you can come to meet with a therapist and unburden yourself of some of those secrets mm-hmm. and free yourself right and then we can be curious about that together and we can see you know what that sounds like when it's spoken out loud and then we can kind of go from there but that's i think one of the first steps is just to say some of those things out loud and mm-hmm. to get a little bit of freedom by the end of that so, so. Mm-hmm.
0: i love that so true right and then, and then as therapists we have this like great privilege of holding all that <laughs> 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 or <sometimes like> that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for you, um, to you both for joining. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. Yeah. So, next time on Two Therapist Tales, please join us as we welcome Kelsey Alpoff and Kelly Schultz onto the podcast as we celebrate May being Mental Health Awareness Month. And our closing quote is from Saad Andrei Zabala I understood myself only after I destroyed myself. And only in the process of fixing myself did I know who I really was. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: This podcast should not be used as a substitute for therapy or mental health treatment. Please reach out to a licensed professional or facility if you are struggling and need to talk to someone.